Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Hi, this is Betsy Rippentrop, and you are listening to Tend Her Wild. In a moment, I will be joined by my co-host, Kate Moreland. In this podcast today, we are having conversations about how women have been conditioned to lose connection to our inner voice and our inner knowing, and how the time has come for us to rewild. Rewilding means a return to one's natural essence, and we all know intuitively how to rewild But it does mean breaking through old stories and the myriad of ways we've been civilized. Having a community of others doing the same is essential. So in today's episode, which actually happens to be our first, I am interviewing Kate Moreland so you can get a chance to better know her, where she's come from, and where she's headed. So I get to do my introduction here of this dear friend of mine. So Kate and I knew each other pretty peripherally for a long time, Uh, but about five years ago, we cemented a much deeper connection, and I think at that moment, we both realized we were interested in a life that was filled with more depth and more inquiry, more authenticity. We were both essentially tired of small talk at cocktail parties, and so in some ways, we sniffed out each other that we were both longing for this more wildish, deeper life. So what really brought Kate and I together happened several years ago. Kate had this amazing brainchild to create a day-long retreat for women that she called her experience. She had been inspired reading um, an author's book, which I can't remember the name of Kate, so you're going to have to tell us about that in a minute. But this woman at this talk encouraged everyone there to go out and make something happen. And Kate Moreland is someone who takes action. She gets an idea and she goes for it. So she decided to plan this long one-day event for women for us to connect in a more real way. And so she invited me to teach at it along with several other amazing women. And what we learned is how hungry women are for real connection, how hungry women are to actually be seen and heard. And what I love, and then I'm going to hand it over to you, Kate, I have to say one more really amazing thing or a couple more amazing things about this woman. She has this deep, tender, really compassionate heart. Like she's such a nurturer and such a deep listener. She's very loyal. But she's also, um, I'm just going to say it, she's a badass. She's an advocate. She's a helper. She's a healer. And she will see injustice And she wants to step in and make a difference. So she's got this like beautiful balance of this tenderness, but also this drive and this fire to make things happen. She's not afraid to like look fear in the eye and go for it. So 
I'm very happy to welcome her as my co-host in this endeavor. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Betsy. That's so kind of you to... I'm trying to kind of take that in a little bit. It's not often that you have someone describe you. So thank you for those words. Yeah. Um, Well, it was easy. It was easy to do. So you and I have talked literally for years now about all these topics that we decided, like, why aren't we recording this? Why aren't we bringing this to other people? Why aren't we doing a podcast? So we finally are doing it. And we're literally doing it in my office, which is ironic because this is where we always sit and have these deep conversations. So it feels like the right place. But you and I came upon this idea of the like rewilding and many authors have talked about it, but it seemed to resonate really deep for you and I about like this desire we both have to be more wild, to break out of these conditioned roles that we had, that we were taught very young, and to actually just start to be ourselves. So I want to go way back to your childhood. Okay. And just tell us a little snapshot of like, were you wild? When did, you know, did that come out later? Uh, What was it like growing up? Yeah, so I grew up on a little farm to begin with when I I was brought home to a little farm, a little white farmhouse. And I have, you know, my parents will tell stories about how I was a climber. I would climb things. I would take risks. I'm sure I was often told to get down and and stop doing those. And that's why they tell the stories. But I was a talker. I would talk to about anyone that, you know, was in any adult. I was never afraid of, of talking to people. But definitely, I think growing up, my formative first years being on the farm where, you know, there were horses and cows and freedom to run. And they used to literally kind of like a, a dog, you know, they would run me like they would take me out and get the energy out, which I know I've done with my boys. But I think often for girls, that's not the case. So I do think I inherently uh, had a lot of energy and, and curiosity as a kid. Um, I didn't sit still very much. But then we moved into town uh, when I was uh, just starting school, and I had two little sisters at that point. So I feel like I shifted at some point into more of a motherly role um, in my family, kind of with my younger sisters and being the example. And then as the oldest girl, you know, uh, expectations were high. I wanted to please and, and do well and get the good grades. But I, I grew up in a small town where I had a small school and I could really participate in so many things. Uh, I ran track and played basketball. I played softball. Uh, I was a cheerleader. You I were was a cheerleader. I was a cheerleader. <laughs> I w- mostly watched the football. I wasn't a very good cheerleader. Um, and then I also uh, was in musicals and plays. Uh, in a small town, you could do all of that. You didn't just pick one sport. You, they needed everyone to do things. So I ended up having a really well-rounded experience growing up. Uh, I got to try things. And I think that's probably part of why I'm not where I kind of have this innate desire to to try things and do things because I had those opportunities and I wasn't really pigeonholed. Mm. Um, But I also very much liked to do well in them. So I was always wanting to, you know, kind of put my best foot forward and kind of had that perfectionism a little bit drilled into me, I think, my own doing, but also just my circumstance of being the oldest child. And so both of those things kind of... Uh, compete with one another a little bit, right? Like, you you know, being wild means taking chances and not knowing the outcome and 
you know, taking risk. And then perfectionism is like, have it all figured out before you take that first step. And so I feel like for the rest of my life, I kind of navigated, I've been Mm. navigating those two things. Um, And now I'm a little bit more on the side of, okay, it can let go a little bit. It doesn't need to be perfect. Do you remember, because I'm so curious, you know that I um, am like such a believer in those first 10 years of a person's life and how it sets down Mm -hmm. sort of the unconscious tape for how everything evolves after that. Because it sounds like, and I can totally picture you as this like wild girl running around the farm, playing with the horses, your parents taking you out to like run, go run Kate for a moment. When did the perfectionism start to seep in? Like when... Did you start to feel the pressure that I think so many young women feel to look right, to be good, to do good, to get A's? Like, do you, was there a moment or do you just remember when that started to emerge? Probably elementary school. Uh, I think school, especially back when I was in school, there was, you know, you wanted to be the good kid. I wanted to be the good kid. Uh, and I was driven to do well in school. And, and once you kind of, especially, I, I hope it's not so much this way anymore, but you really, you kind of got put in a box. Remember the reading groups, you know? Oh, yeah. Which reading group were you in? And everyone can remember what reading group they were in. I was not in the good reading yeah. group growing up in my first year and it totally gutted me and from then on out I was like oh no I will be in the best reading group but that first time I wasn't and yes I still remember it yeah so I think that's for a lot of us our age that's the first time someone designates you are you a you know highest middle or low yeah so um, I was in the highest reading group. There was an expectation set for me that I needed to meet. You know, I grew up in the 70s and, and 80s. And uh, my mom, because I was a little bit of a tomboy, uh, we had to wear a dress one day a week to school. Like that was your mom's rule? Yes, mom's rule. Oh so gosh. guess what day I always wore a dress? Monday to get it out of the way? No, Friday. I would put it off and put it off, hoping she'd forget that I hadn't worn it yet. And sure she enough, every did. Thursday night, you know, you haven't worn your dress yet this week, right? So um, I I always kind of pushed against some of those rules, but I also, I knew when to conform and when I, it would behoove me to also please people. And, and so again, I rode that balance. And I think that is the piece that all women can relate to is that when we are the good girl, when we follow the rules, when we get the A's, when we're quiet, when we we do what we're told, we're positively reinforced for that. So like in the moment, it benefits us. It makes us feel like we're safe or we're okay. And it works for a short period of time. But then if you keep that going for the course of your life. Yeah, it can hold you back. It holds you back. Yeah. Yeah. No question. And my parents were very encouraging. I have a great, I had a, I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, some of this was the product of the times, right? My mom stayed at home, which was wonderful, but um, she was a, got her master's in social work and then became a mom. And so she had a, a different experience in that she was really dedicated to being home with us, you know, which gave her a lot of time to kind of you know, help us navigate the world. And um, so some of that I didn't have to do on my own, right? I had a lot of support, which kind of can cut both ways. Um, But it was, overall, it was a wonderful childhood. I just look back and think, you know, times are different now. Um, I have a daughter and and, um, 
I ended up being a working mom. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of continue on. I, I went straight to college. I uh, left and went away to college, which was a big move for me. I was the only one in my high school class of 35 that actually left the state to go to school. What? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, everyone else stayed in the state. And um, so that was a big step for me. Uh, went to a big city. I went to a uh, big university out, out of Iowa and, um, and discovered myself, met people that didn't look like me for the first time, right? I, I grew up in such a small town that I, it opened my eyes to so many, you know, different types of people and ideas and thoughts. And um, it was a really good period of discovery for me. Um, but I also... Did you get wild in college? I was Yes, I was pretty wild. Okay, I had to ask that. Yeah, I did. I uh, I took full advantage of the college experience for sure. Um, but I kind of, I needed to, you know, I'd lived a little bit of a sheltered life and I had wonderful, you know, friends and, and family, but this kind of expanded my horizons in a way that I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but I also struggled with what I was supposed to do after. And I went thinking I would be a teacher because, of course, that's the job that you're familiar with growing up in the in the 80s and um, and was really uh, drawn to psychology. So I ended up being a psychology major. And as we'll talk with you, that what do you do with that? Right. You're going to either go on to school. You do nothing with a BA in psychology. (laughs) You do not. So I had to make a choice uh, about going to grad school in psychology or what my my family thought I would should would should do and go to law school, and I didn't know that you were that close. That you were mm-hmm. like, am I either going to go to grad school in psychology or am I going to go to law school? Yeah, I, I I don't know that I let myself fully uh, explore both options. I think I was looking for outside information mm-hmm. on what would be best for me. And everyone was telling you law oh, because yeah. your dad is a lawyer. And right. so it was known, it was a known quantity. You were smart. Yeah. You were the firstborn. You should go into law. So yeah. did you, like, when did you start hearing that? Did you start hearing that in third grade or yes. was it fun? You did. Yep. Very young. Yeah. And, and the wild side of me pushed that suggestion away for a while. And, and I said, mm. nope, I, I want to go into education. I want to be a teacher. But in the end, it, that, you know, that, had been kind of a mantra that I'd heard for a while and seemed like the next, you know, step in my education that would take me the furthest. And I think that's what... And you were a smart kid. That's the thing. Yeah. People who are smart or, you know, they're like, well, you can do anything. You should become a doctor or a lawyer. And so you heard that and you're like, all right, I think I'll go do this. Okay. So then you go to law school and please tell the story about like... My first week. Yes. Tell the story about your first week at law yeah. school. I, I came, I, I actually ended up coming back to go to law school. So I wasn't that far from home. And uh, I went that first week and we had at the end of the week, it was like a Thursday. They brought all the students together outside and I'd gone to like three classes and I was standing in this whole group of people, probably, you know, 200 people in my law school class. And I was looking around and every fiber of my being was like, what are you doing here? Like, mm-hmm. it did not feel right at all. The, the building didn't feel right. The classes didn't feel right. The people around me, I didn't feel like I, like these, I just didn't feel like You're I like, fit these in. aren't my people. No. 
You knew that right away, I, week one. I knew it, but but I didn't really listen to it. And and I did share that with a few people, and they're like, it gets better. Like, it will get better. Um, it's the first week's just hard, right? And so I internalized that. I'm like, okay, I can... I'll adapt, right? I'll figure out a way. And and I made it through. I, I really didn't enjoy much of anything about law school. But holy shit, can I just say, you adapted. Like, it's a three-year mm-hmm. journey. And you hung in there for three years, even though that week one, you your like intuitive sense yeah. came online that this isn't, this doesn't feel good to me. Right. But you like grinned and bared it and like you did it. I did it. And I'm also someone that I tend to finish what I start. So that had been ingrained in You're me loyal, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Very loyal. Loyal to decisions, to people. Um, it's, I think it's always my top trait when I do those assessments. So, um, so it's hard for me to, I think in a lot of situations to like move away from a decision or, uh, change my mind necessarily on things because I, I stick with things. Um, so I wouldn't say, you know, I, you can look back on your life and think I should have known I should have made a different decision. And what would that have looked like? Um, but in the end, um, I feel like what I've done is take that experience and what I learned and those skills and just figured out a different way to use them. Yeah, absolutely. You have. So you finish law school, you go into law. Well, at first I get married. Oh, you get married first. That's a very important <laughs> yeah. point. I got married in law school. You got married in law school after yeah. your what year? The beginning of my third year, I got okay. married. And it was it was crazy. I remember going to my law professor and I said, hey, I'm going to be gone next week because I'm going to go on a honeymoon. <laughs> and he's like, excuse me? <laughs> you don't just miss a whole week of law school class. But Really? But I did. I did not do well in that class, too, by you the way. You were wild. You, yeah, that you was a wild, wild decision. You are yeah. like, I'm going to take a honeymoon yeah. and not come to law school for one I whole know. week. I know. I paid for that. Um, and so I uh, took a job prosecuting after law school. Which isn't, I'm, I'm not into oh. law at all, but like, isn't that the hardest job you it, can take on as a lawyer is being the prosecutor? It, it, it is it's probably in the top five worst why? jobs. Why? 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 So... I did an internship during law school with the prosecutor's office. And the one thing that I enjoyed about law school was public speaking. And being a prosecutor meant you were in court a lot. You were always in front of the judge. You were, you know, doing oral advocacy or you were arguing a case where a lot of lawyers don't see the courtroom, but maybe once or twice a year. That was an everyday role for a prosecutor. So I actually enjoyed that part of it. What I didn't kind of factor in as an intern that if you're doing that full time, the, you know, the monotony of that, the heartbreak that I saw, I mean, you really see the the parts of our community that are suffering the most that are, you know, they end up in the court system for reasons that, you know, are, you know, we just, it's the kind of the, the fabric of our society and the things that, that aren't working for people. And so it was heartbreaking day in, day out. And I've told you this before, but I, I definitely am an empath. And so literally all of that stuck to me. Ugh. And I, I remember. I know you so well, oh. and I cannot even imagine yeah. you hearing these horrific stories day in and day out. And yeah, not I dismissed knowing a few, how to like process it <laughs> yeah. through. Like, I dismissed a few cases just because I couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't prosecute it. them. Then are the lawyers above you who are your bosses like hard on you? Because you should be tougher? Or like, did you ever get the message like, 
you should be tough. You should be able to hang in oh, there yeah. with this. Yeah. I mean, we had parameters that we were supposed to follow and um, it was challenging for me. Again, I was kind of in a box that I didn't belong in, but it was the job I got out of law school. It felt like somewhere I could build a career. I didn't knew I didn't want to stay there forever. Um, and what it did allow me to do is work with all sorts of lawyers. And I eventually knew the firm that I wanted to go work for. So I left there and actually, you know, we wanted to have a child. I, I, we had infertility issues and, um, I know now looking back, it was very much stress related because, um, mind and the body connected. Yeah. Your body was like, I can't do this. Yep. I left that job, went into private practice and was pregnant within three months. Interesting. So, but then I made the incredibly wise decision that I should probably do high conflict divorce work because that would also be oh, of course. really good for empaths. empaths. <laughs> yes. Um, I represented a lot of kids. I did a lot of juvenile work as well. And I found that very rewarding, you know, sitting with kids who had made mistakes and helping them navigate that system and, and, you know, helping them think about, you know, how they can learn from this and move on. So I did, there were parts of my job when I worked as a private attorney that I, I really valued as like, I felt like I was giving back in a way that felt really good. I also represented a lot of children that needed a voice in the courtroom. So I did that in divorce work. I did that in adoptions um, and juvenile cases. And I had some heartbreaking cases for sure. Um, And as I, we had our first daughter uh, and then a son and it became harder for me to not take all that home uh, because I was often working with children and um, and then I would come home and see my own kids and feel like, you know, it, it was hard. I knew that I could not do therapy with children yeah. because I would not be able to listen to it without being able to be like, and now I'd like to take you home and help you. Yes. So I totally feel for you hearing those and then having children of your own and just the the inner turmoil of all of that. Yeah. And, you know, I look back on that part of my life and uh, hope I made some difference. But at some point, and I had actually a moment uh, that was a turning point for me, I was pregnant with our third child, who was a a bit of a surprise um, because we had infertility uh, with the first two. Um, And I was nine months pregnant. I was in my master bathroom on the phone with a divorce client who was yelling at me because of the circumstances of visitation. And my little two were outside banging on the door. Let me in, let us in. Or we're, you know, we wanted, they wanted a snack. I remember that. And I was like, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. And I got off the phone about 10 minutes later, I go down and they had opened pudding packs, you know, like a little pudding snack and they'd exploded. They were all over their face. And then they opened Rice Krispies and the box had like, you know, ripped open. So the Rice Krispies were stuck to the pudding on the kids. And (laughs) I came down and their eyes were right big. I mean, Rice Krispies everywhere. And uh, we all started to laugh, the three of us. And then I started to cry. You had a lot of good uh, pregnancy hormones. I did. Your body I did. At that moment I did. As well. It was a perfect storm. And I went in the next day and I said, I need to step away. So I took a year off. But like, can I just pause a minute? Yeah. Because this is another thing that I've always appreciated in you is for me, like it takes an act of Congress to make a decision. Like I sit on something and sit on something. It takes me years and years. And I love that you had this moment just this very clear moment, and you knew. You're like, nope, I'm done moving on. I mean, I yeah. just think that's phenomenal, Kate, that you 
that you like when you know you stick to it and you go for it. Yeah, there's pro- that is part of my personality. I think um, I haven't always listened to those, but the times I have have been pretty pivotal. I think and changed the whole trajectory of you know my life. Um, okay, so you leave law. I leave law. Like, tell us about the reverberations of that because part of this podcast is we want to encourage each other. Um, not only women, but men, all humankind, to, to figure out who you are and live that, right? And that we've all been so civilized and conditioned to be a certain way or to think a certain way. And so it takes actually a lot of courage to break out of those chains and what we're saying, rewild, become your wild essence, become who you really are. And while it's not a pejorative word, it's actually like a truthful world. Just be yourself, right? Right. So what I'm curious is you leave law. Like I think about how much money you spent to get into law school, mm-hmm. how much money it cost you to go. It, this was your, your dad was a lawyer, right? What were the reverberations? And I see tears coming in her eyes right now. So <laughs> what were the reverberations in your family and your friends and your marriage? Your husband, can we also say, is a lawyer as yes. well. Like what happened when you took that step to say, uh-uh, doesn't align with who I am anymore? Like what happened? Yeah. Well, looking back, I think in some ways I probably used my youngest Jack as the reason, right? It's a lot easier for women to say I'm doing this for someone else. Oh, isn't that such a woman thing? I, I, I couldn't really voice that I was doing it for myself. Yeah. So I remember saying to people, well, I have never stayed home after I've had a child. I have this opportunity to stay home. And Joe was on board with it. My husband said, you know, yes, we can make this work. Uh, and I, I was saying I'm taking a pause. I didn't even let myself say I'm totally quitting. I was like, I'm going to pause and then see what I want to come back to. So I think that made it more palatable for everyone in my world because it, it didn't seem like a final decision. I had a new baby, number three, and that's a lot. So I think I got a lot of like, oh, so, you know, sure, take a break. It was when I, a year in, said, I'm not going back, mm. that I had to kind of reckon with you know, and I remember talking to my dad, who's the most amazing man, and, and he said, I had all this guilt and shame about, you know, not going back to law. And I remember he said, I'd be happy if you were selling shoes. Mm. And he really meant that. He didn't expect me to keep doing something that I didn't love. So do you think, because I think this is, happens to all of us, that we create stories in our minds too about what other people think or expect of us and they're not always the reality but we live it as if it is the reality 100 percent, yeah and that for me was the story I told myself probably even during law school right this is important to him this he would want this for me you know I'm doing the right thing yes yeah and and I admired him very much and I watched my dad help people for so many years in my small town and and he's just such an, a wonderful man. And then my mom, who now, you know, after raising us, went back to be a school social worker. And I've always thought myself to be kind of a hybrid of both of them, right? Like, I, I'm an advocate, but I also, I love helping people, right? And meeting people where they're at and seeing how I can help make their lives better. So I'm a little bit of a combination of my mom and dad, but I kind of had to create my career to fit me and say, you know, I don't fit into the law box, uh, completely. It just wasn't right, especially the type of law I was doing. So I've kind of found my way back to myself. 
it's just taken me a really yeah. long time. So then you tried to stay at home for a while with your kids and you were like, oh, I can't oh, do this. Yeah. Can we talk about that for a moment? Because I think so many women struggle, myself included, that I should be home with these beautiful, amazing children. What's wrong with me? That I don't want to be here on the floor playing blocks with them. Yeah. I had a lot of guilt about that because here I have this great opportunity and I should be relishing. There's the should. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wasn't. And I, I actually went to talk to someone, I went into therapy and, and I spent a lot of the time in therapy advocating for why I should continue to stay home. <laughs> mm, you're trying to convince yourself yes, to stay like, home. Like, oh, but if I, yeah. And I remember her saying, you know, he's going to be fine. He might actually do better if you are happier. Mm. Uh, and she kind of gave me this freedom to say, okay, it's time for me to get back out there. So then I went a different direction. I had an opportunity with a nonprofit. I was sitting on their board and it was for youth and um, counseling services and youth development services that they did in town. And I believed in the mission and they had an opportunity that they asked me to apply for. And I actually at the same time had an offer at the law school. You did. And I, they were both in front of me, both opportunities. And I remember saying, I didn't even like law school. Like, why would I want to go work there? So interesting. Right? But that would have been- You made the wild choice. I made the wild choice right then. It was a fork in the road for me. You made the wild choice. And uh, I know there were people that were like, what? And that's when you sometimes know you're doing the right thing. So how do you know? Because I I think we all are faced with decisions and we can get caught up in, well, this is what I should do. This is what people would expect for me to do. This is what my parents want or my partner wants. Like, how do you actually- follow and hear your own inner wild voice that says, I'm not going back or. Yeah. When I tune into myself and I really focus on where am I drawn? Like, where is my heart drawn? Not my ego, not my head, Mm. but where, where am I like drawn to be? And for me, that organization, I was drawn to that organization. I was Mm. not drawn to it. So it's heart. It It was heart. It's heart. Yeah. And I think so often we're in our heads and make decisions from, you know, that space. And then we end up convincing ourselves we're making the right choice because we know so-and-so will approve or, um, but yeah, I think if you focus on, on the heart, you can't really go wrong. Um, and if you don't choose from the heart, you're not really ever making decisions for yourself. You're always making them for someone else. And amen to that. So I've, but so easy to do to make decisions for other people when you're a caregiver and you're an empath and you're a mother. And it doesn't mean they're not factors, but you know, in decision-making and in people in your lives, of course it is. But ultimately, especially with careers, I always tell people you're the one spending 80% of your time there. You are. Yeah. Not, not your parents, not your kids, not your husband, you. Yeah. So if you don't, if you don't tap into that for yourself, then you won't, you won't enjoy the work or the, or the place you're doing it. So it's really, I think, important that we honor our own. Yeah. So I love that you went through a very traditional path. You followed the rules. You went to law school. You became, you know, a prosecutor, not a persecutor, a prosecutor. And then at some point you kind of reached the 
the stage of like, why am I doing this? No, this isn't for me. I'm going to forge my own path. And I feel like that's what you keep doing. You keep forging a path that works for Kate. Again, do you get pushback? Do you feel pushback from other people, from society, from friends? Because I do think when you choose a wild path, when you choose a path of the heart, right? it's, it's not always the easiest path. Right. Yeah, I still tend to, it's hard to not ever look for reaction or pick up on people's kind of curiosity that might be a little bit maybe critical. Um, I love how you said that. Curiosity, that might be a little <laughs> critical. Um, yeah, when people say, now, why are, what are you doing now? I get that a lot. I get that question a lot. Now, where where are you now? I've been in the same place for nine years, but people still ask me that because they know that I've switched careers. So, yeah, I think you. we definitely, it's hard to make, sometimes to make the choice that's the wild choice or the, the authentic choice. But when you do that, some of that criticism or I don't, you worry less about it. And frankly, the more you make those decisions, the easier they become, right? Like the first one for me to leave law was, was really hard. Like I had a lot of guilt and shame around that. But as my career has changed, when a new opportunity came up, sometimes I would leap before I really knew, but mm-hmm. I knew I was drawn to it. I knew I was drawn to either the people again. or the mission. And I, I'd take those chances. And I think that's what like living a full, authentic life is about is when those opportunities present themselves, you you say yes, because what you need shows up. Yeah. You just have to be in tune to it. Okay. So now you're the boss lady. Oh, now I'm the you're boss. You're the boss lady. Yeah. And so tell us, tell us what you're doing now and also what it's like to be at the top because you... You shared with me one time, you're like, I've always been right under the top. Like I've been the person right underneath the boss. Number two. I've been number two. And so now that you've been number one, what's that like? And is it all you imagined (laughs) or I know there've been surprises for you as well. Yeah. Well, I took over as CEO um, right when the pandemic hit. So my CEO story or being moving into that number one role or the leadership role is really unique because I've not led other than in a crisis, which means I've had to really do things my own way because there's, there's no rule book for the last two years of, yeah. of life. So in some ways that was a huge gift. I didn't, I'm the first woman to hold this job in 39 years. And there's, and you're the CEO of, of Iowa City Area Development. Okay. So economic development organization, a nonprofit that does economic development. And so I've been able to really kind of navigate this in my own way. Um, I've probably had more freedom because um, of the crisis. And while it was scary, I also, I have to say, um, I probably appreciated being able to, to lead during a time when there were no rules, which also says something about me. You're wild. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I, I've been able to kind of rewrite, you know, what our organization needed to do during that time. Um, we're kind of starting to come out of that in recovery. And now the balance is, okay, what do we go back to? And what do we, what do we learn from and continue to do uh, that's continues to be the right thing and, and taking care of our community. So it's been a really valuable couple of years for me. The opportunity kind of came to me at a time when I was probably close to leaving 
And I remember thinking, I don't think I'm, should I be taking this? Am I the right person? And I decided, I remember again, gut reaction, there's a reason. So I'm just going to see what happens and I'm going to apply. And then the world fell apart. And then I thought, what have I signed up for? Um, but it's been, it's been a whirlwind of learning and growing. I've grown so much. I mean, the crises, you know, that as a leader, the things that have come up over time, to me, leadership is all about empowering others to lead. And that's the part I actually love the most about it because I have great people. I just need to make, help make them and the situation better. That's every day. Like how can we make, you know, and, and give people the freedom to lead is leadership is not in one person. So um, and I had good, I've had good models that have shown me that, that as well. So I wouldn't trade the opportunity. It's been, it's helped me grow as a person in a, in a huge way, but um, it is different in the seat. There's a lot of responsibility and especially during a time when I couldn't count on anything, right? We'd think one day would look one way. And then a week later we had a new problem, you know, as the world, the community, you know, needed different things from our organization. So what it did allow me to do is be really entrepreneurial in how I led and how our organization responded. And I think what I've realized is that's the piece of me, right? No one tells you to be an entrepreneur when you're a kid, not in the eighties. Nobody said yeah, that. I didn't even think I knew what that word meant. Yeah. My, my son told me, isn't that, aren't those people without real jobs? Um, <laughs> but it's, he did, but it's a mindset. And um, I've had, we've all had to have that mindset in some ways to be able to get through these, this period in time, right? We have to be creative and look for solutions to problems we never even imagined we'd be facing. And um, I also love to work with other people. So the, the time I've led has allowed me to do all of those things at the same time. So I wouldn't trade, yeah, that opportunity for anything. Um, and I hope every day I'm getting a little better at it because it's, it's a steep learning curve. Well, I totally think you're an entrepreneur and I'm just excited to see which iterations of Kate keep coming forward as yeah. you keep moving in in the direction of your heart because I love that you're so connected to your heart. Okay, so I have a couple more questions and the one that I want to ask because this is about being a wild, wild person, wild woman, is you have a daughter Yes. Beautiful Mag, who is in college. And your exploration of rewilding or returning to your heart or your essence or who you really are, I'm curious, how do you hope it's going to impact Meg? Or maybe how has it already impacted Meg? Yeah, I think she's seen me, she's witnessed me um, take chances um, just in my career moves. She's seen me try new things and follow my heart. And I've been really open with her about some of those decisions. And I hope she'll just do it even better than I have, like be, you know, have courage uh, when opportunities come up. I think a lot of times, you know, we as women, an opportunity presents itself. And we, instead of thinking all the reasons why it makes sense, we think of all the things we're lacking to be able to do something right. Well, I don't really have that expertise or this. So I hope it, I hope it, will help her uh, really make good informed decisions about what's right for her and, and take chances. I know as a parent, you kind of, you have to model that, but also talk about the times things don't go well so that resiliency is part of this. If you're going to take chances, there's going to be times when things don't work out. Yeah. 
and let that be okay too. Yeah. Because you still learn from all of those experiences. But if you don't really live or try things, then you're kind of not fully, fully present in your life and you're not really getting all that you can out of it. Totally agree. Okay. I want to end with this. And this is, this is the ideas from um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who's the author of Women Who Run with the Wolves, which is one of my Bibles that I refer to. And I know you have read yes. it as well. Love it. We might have a book club down the road with it because it's such a powerful book. And it's been out for a long time. Yes. I remember, in fact, my sister had this book on her bookshelf when I moved in with her right after college. And I remember taking it off the bookshelf and opening it. And it didn't really speak to me at that time. I was still too caught up in my good, good girl um, yep. persona. And then I found the book at my sister's house again. Recently? She doesn't even know this. This was like five, eight years ago. And I took it off her shelf and I devoured it. So the copy I have is still my sister's copy that oh. I originally touched in my 20s, but yes. wasn't ready for it. Okay. Anyway, Clarissa Pinkola Estes says... The doors the world of wild women have are few but precious. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much you can almost not bear it, that is a door. And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is the door. So which door do you think has allowed you to move toward the world of the wild woman? Is it the scar? Is it the old, old story? Is it because you love the sky and the water so much you can't bear it? Or is it because you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, or maybe all of the above? Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a few things. I'm just turned 50 and it's a lot of years and there's something that kind of happened when I thought about like living half a century. Um, you do reflect a lot on, on your scars and the things that, you know, make you who you are. So certainly some of the, the scars and then just, I think I've always wanted a really deep full life and you don't just get there and then you're done. I think that's the discovery I've made. Like, being wild means being open to the next thing and the next thing. And I hope I'm doing that well into my 90s. I think you will. Thank yeah. you, Kate Moreland, for your beautiful Thank soul you. and spirit and all your amazing sharing today. Thank you. So glad to be doing this with you. Me too. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week. Day.